Hey everyone and welcome to the On The Ledge podcast. I'm your host, as always, Rylan Johnson. Today's guest is John Last, uh, CBC, former CBC North reporter, now freelance journalist, which I think allows him to be a little bit more unfiltered in this episode. Uh, the first half of the episode is spent covering a four-part series that John Last and Sidney Cohen did on Northview. I will link that in the article description. Uh, this is actually a file I'm starting to feel optimistic about. I think this reporting, along with my repeated questions on this matter, have kind of convinced my colleagues and the ministers responsible for these portfolios to revisit that $20 million a year that GNWT gives to Northview. Uh, it's going to take a real concerted effort. Uh, leases are very long-term, moving office spaces or all of a sudden moving hundreds of public housing units out of a private landlord is, is not a simple task, so it, it has to really be driven by the minister, but I will, I'll continue to apply some pressure on it. And I'm optimistic we can take some of that $20 million and uh, give some of that long-term leasing funding to nonprofits who will then, you know, probably leverage it to give even more federal housing money, which we're starting to see flow out of the federal government these days. So I think there's lots of exciting work to be done in this area. Uh, the second half of this episode is really me and John griping about uh, the GNWT in general and GNWT comms. I I note I a lot of this was kind of covered in the Ollie Williams episode, and this actually, in fact, was the first episode I recorded. But the the audio quality was just so terrible that I I've spent some time editing it. Uh, I I think after about episode eight, I should have that all sorted out. I have finally found the best way to go about my terrible internet or our terrible internet in the north is to to dial in my phone, and then I got a special mic attached to my phone, and that and that seems to get better audio quality. So, uh, just live with it for now. Hopefully, it is improving in the future. But I I note that I I've spend a lot of time complaining about the GNWT and, and I've been reflecting on that as these episodes come out that, and that it's not just what I want this show to be is, you know, my uh, mental, much needed mental health break to vent about my job. I, I will try to entertain more episodes about the, the solutions that we need to implement, how to implement those solutions and, and make sure it's not just, you know, talking about problems without any solutions in mind. Uh, I, I also want to point out that me and John talk quite a bit in this episode about what to do about this problem that the G, the vast majority of the GNWT public service is non-Indigenous and, and not born in the North. We joke about, you know, how a government that is made up of white Southern guys with uh, bachelor's degrees could ever decolonize. And well, I, the irony is not lost on me that it's two white Southern guys with bachelor degrees uh, talking about that problem. But I, I, I think we do it somewhat comically. I, I appreciate that. And I think it raises some of these questions that we now need to get some solutions on. And I will assure you, I will be doing that in many future episodes. So without further ado, let's get into it. Uh, John Last on the Lens Podcast. Let's get it started. All right, John, uh, thank you for uh, joining me on the podcast. You're actually my uh, first guest. I, uh, I, I recorded nice. Dispatches from the Scandamaniac, a podcast, over two years ago was the last episode I did for that before being elected. And I always wanted to do uh, a kind of uh, podcast while sitting in the legislature. There's, there's a few MLAs and MPs who do them, but it, 
I uh, haven't got around to it. And so I'm starting with you. Uh, my last podcast was probably about mostly uh, identity, mental health, sex, and drugs. Uh, this one's probably going to be a lot more about politics. So I, I think I'm going to kind of going in a different direction. Uh, but uh, John, last... in some sex and drugs. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Uh, John Last, a former CBC North reporter, current freelance journaler, yeah, journalist. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Firstly, uh, can you just? Yeah, I, I think I'm going to miss your your CBC reporting. I, I don't really know how CBC works, but every once in a while, they just let one of the journalists be the sassy one and write these, like, I, I think you guys call them analysis piece, but they're, they're really just op-eds that yeah. tear into the GNWT. Uh, Richard Gleason seems to have held that mantle for decades now or however long he's been there. But uh, can you first talk mm-hmm. about- well, He's now the assignment editor. He's now in charge of what stories get written, which is, a, which is a great thing. I think that's good that that change was made, but it's true. It's, it's very haphazard how CBC decides you know, who gets to have an opinion. I've worked alongside a lot of colleagues who were definitely more rigorous journalists than I was. <laughs> and were, were able to make those arguments with a hell of a lot more evidence. Uh, but they were often told that they couldn't uh, because, oh, well, you know, CBC doesn't do that kind of thing. And then I'd come along with, you know, well, I think that maybe the GNWT is full of incompetence. <laughs> and, uh, and for some reason, uh, they stood behind me on those ones. So I did write a lot of those pieces for sure. Yeah, I enjoyed that they kind of let you get away with that. Um, I, I wanted to have you on to start to, to talk about the, the Northview series that you and Sidney Cohen just published, four-part series. I, I, firstly, I want to thank you for that journalism. I, I think it's some of the best work to come out of CBC North. I, I, no, that's very good. Yeah, well, yeah, but also just in regards to the format, I don't know why we don't do multi-part investigatory series more. It kind of seems like if we're going to fund journalism, that's exactly the kind of work that should be doing. And so, I mean, maybe you could just start and uh, give me a picture of how you guys kind of put that story together. Yeah, well, to your point about multi-part investigative journalism, I think that's something that CBC is kind of learning to do. Something that audience members should probably appreciate about the CBC is that until very recently, it was not a print publication. It didn't do written word stories. It was broadcast and it was sort of same day turnaround kind of stories. Um, And then you'd have these sort of special programs where they do more in-depth stuff. So uh, it's changing. It's definitely changing. And it's turning into something which is kind of like a local newspaper in markets across the country. And that's a good change, I think, for the Canadian media ecosystem, but it's not necessarily one that CBC has wrapped its head around yet. It's quite hard to convince them to take on new formats. And I had some success with that while I was there, but I still left because I was frustrated with it, partly, um, because it's very difficult to get stuff done in the CBC. Case in point, the Northview series. So (laughs) this, uh, this came, like, Sidney Cohen and I had both wanted to do this story for the whole time we were there. I was a Northview tenant. Uh, I don't know if you ever went to my, yeah, you were in my apartment in uh, in Ridgeview North. And I, I know uh, the building. I'm not sure if I was in it, but I, I mean, I can picture a Ridgeview. You North might have North. never, you might have never made it there. You would have seen the, uh, the uh, sort of brown stains on the ceiling from like the leaking water through the attic. The, my balcony door froze shut in the wintertime. It was like, it was a tenement. And, uh, <laughs> and 
I realized uh, while I was living there that, you know, this was kind of the one rental company in town in a lot of ways, because we looked for other places and we could never find them. And Sydney had her own interests in this company because she saw the same thing. And, you know, Sydney is a very strong investigative journalist who's <laughs> quite a lot, again, quite a lot more rigorous than I am. And uh, so she was... Uh, she was very interested in kind of digging into this company and the specifics, but the thing for her that kind of triggered it was, um, uh, what is that building that had a piece of siding fall off and it's never the, the, been The Belanca building, a uh, 10-story vacant commercial tower. The Belanca building. Yeah. That's right. And so she saw that happen and was like, how the hell... Can this happen? How can a how can a, number one? How can a building sit vacant for that long? And how can there be a business case for that? And then additionally, you know, how did the how can it itself deteriorate? And so she did. Uh, she was interested in the company that ran that, which was Kingset. But she was also interested in just the financials of this company, Northview, which was in fact acquired by Kingset. And that's kind of the start of this story. Is this historic uh, transaction where Northview was purchased by Kingset. And so we did this series where we kind of looked into both the history of how Northview came to dominate so much of the North rental market and a little bit about, you know, the business case for that company and how it, uh, how it justifies its existence and how the government and policymakers are kind of in a big part, uh, you know, supporting that company and making sure its, its survival uh, continues kind of thing. Yeah, I, I, I want to get to how Northview is very much a product of the GNWT and you can't really view it without GNWT funding uh, being a key part of the story. But, but first, I want to explain kind of at a larger level, um, can you give me a picture of, of how a, a company can own a building, a 10-story apartment building for, for dec years and keep it vacant and not repair it and how that makes any sense? Because clearly, if you or I... Yeah. We're, we're even multi-millionaires and we own that building we would have to put money into it so eventually we, yeah, yeah we would eventually well, i think the thing i think it's <laughs> yeah i think the thing is is that it's a matter of scale like to a certain extent this is about the fact that this company is so large and has so many holdings uh i believe it's 20 billion dollars in in holdings uh across the country tens of thousands of units, you know, millions of square feet of commercial space. It's a gigantic company. And so even though when Northview started, it was a small company that was kind of, its whole business was Northern economies, Northern communities, providing housing in the North, um, and certainly making a profit off of the fact that there was no choice in those places. But but consolidating in the market, I mean, that was that was allowed to happen, but it's also like a pretty standard business model. You know, you, you go into a market where there's not a lot of choice and you offer product and it allows you to set your price. And so they did that. But what changed over the course of the 2000s and, and up to today is that the Northern Holdings became this tiny fraction of what was something that's happening across the country. These giant companies treating rental housing as if it was almost shares, right? Just just things that offer a regular return. It doesn't really, it's not connected with a tenant. It's not connected with a, a concept or an ideology of housing. It's really just about extracting value at a large scale. And so when you're dealing with that, sure, like, yeah, a building sitting vacant and deteriorating is probably a loss item for them. But like, is it a loss item in Yellowknife where like the work of filling that building, of retrofitting that building so it has value of finding tenants? Like, 
that that work is probably not worth it for them to undertake in this current you know situation in the north where in Yellowknife commercial vacancies are pretty high. Um, so it's it's not worth it to them to to maintain that building when they have so many other assets to worry about and so many other assets to to make money off of. Yeah, and I think this is it's actually becoming more and more talked about. It's uh, you know it's far more common in the United States, but Canada it's been an election issue. This kind of financialization of of housing and and seeing these, mm -hmm. I I forget one of the REITs was proposing to buy a billion dollars with a single family homes and. And, and that was, it caused the uproar for some reason, you know, people view the white picket fence houses. Well, no, no, corporations can't own all of those. They can't own the suburbs, but, uh, but, yeah. but apartments. Well, it's aspirational, right? Yeah, yeah. It's people, people imagine themselves owning those homes, but they don't imagine themselves owning an apartment building. Exactly. But, you know, most of the people who are imagining themselves owning those homes are currently renting and they just see that it as a given in the rental world when, you know, even 30 years ago and 30 years is admittedly quite a long time, but 30 years ago, REITs didn't even exist in Canada. So you're talking about the kind of exponential growth that's really frightening when you're when you're contemplating, you know, their effect on the market and just how devastating their impact has been for renters in such a short period of time. Yeah. And can you speak a little bit to the origin of REITs? Uh, did you guys get into this? And, and the, you know, why are we not just seeing landlords be a simple corporation paying corporate income tax, owning buildings? Uh, why is that model right. fading away of the, t the normal landlord, normal of, of, of a multi-million dollar corporation owning buildings? And how is that different from a REIT? And why has that push kind of, where did it start? And how did we end up today where they're now worth $20 billion plus? Yeah, well, REITs were kind of first piloted in the United States as a way for investors to increase their investment in housing. So essentially, after the war in the United States in the 50s and 60s, there was an appetite for more housing like there is today. And one of the solutions that people came up with was this idea of allowing investors to kind of purchase pieces of, of rental income rather than having to go in on a building, uh, which is quite a big ask. They were able to purchase like a small piece of a company that owns several buildings. So the way REITs work is essentially you buy a share in a company um, and in exchange for that share, you maybe have one one millionth of the company's available shares. And in exchange for that, you get one one millionth of the rent, of the rent that people pay. Um, and the rules of the company are fairly straightforward, rules of REITs are fairly straightforward in that, in most cases, 100% of the rental income after your kind of expenses uh, need to be divided up among your shareholders. Uh, and that model worked to create a bit of a housing bubble in the United States, but when it came to Canada it was actually in the 90s, and it was the CMHC of all places that pushed for this. And in the 90s, you're looking at this context where like a lot of provincial governments, uh, the federal government as well, were deciding that it was no longer the role of governments to build housing and provide public housing, which is something we're really reevaluating now. Like nowadays, you think of that and you're like, that's crazy. Like, how did we ever that that was that was right? But this was in the context of, you know, economies doing well, you know, like deregulation seems to be working. It seems to have had the desired effect. So the logic was that. Uh, you know, the if you bring this model to Canada, we'll get similar bumps in terms of house building because people house in an apartment building because people will find it e easier to invest to make a profit. It's and they had they had for for many many years, but 
it's interesting because when these buildings were built in Yellowknife, they were built by families that kind of expected to own them for, you know, 20 years at most and then sell them on. And that's exactly what happened. Only only one company was buying and that company was Northview. So it led to this consolidation. But the other kind of consequence of that is that the people building it aren't really expecting to be on the hook for its maintenance or its upkeep 20, 30 years from now. So a lot of these buildings were built, and this is something that, you know, we have to be careful with because we didn't necessarily get the evidence uh, to support this in our reporting process. But a lot of them were built in a fashion where they, you know, one architect I spoke to called them uh, plyboard palaces. They're basically built with very little insulation. They were cold, drafty, you know, cheap builds. And then Northview, when a rental company or any company buys them, they're going to look for cost savings. And that means doing things like upping the insulation and improving the heating. And, you know, those when you have a cold, drafty building and you tack on a bunch of insulation, you get moisture problems. So like... This is kind of how, you know, a generation of, of, of bad political management, I think it comes down to that to a certain extent. There was a lack of regulation on the, on the building side. There was a lack of, of sort of oversight on the maintenance side. There was a lack of sort of evaluation of whether those things were appropriate. And then, and then everyone turned a blind eye to, to, the, to the acquisitions that were happening. And no one really thought about Northview as a problem until it decided to deny income assistance tenants, uh, you know, access to properties. And that's what everyone kind of realized. Oh, we rely on this company for, for everything, for our public housing and for our private housing. It, it is, it's too big. Yeah. And can you also speak to the the GNWT's role in this because this is what's the thing I've kind of hammered on tirelessly is that uh, I, I believe it's twenty million dollars is is that the figure of of what GNWT mm-hmm. is paying Northview every single year now I, and I, I there was a line in the articles that I really enjoyed that that twenty million dollars is more than the GNWT is providing communities for water and sewer services so right. it's, it's <laughs> yeah 20 million dollars in our budget is not insignificant i mean obviously not um yeah and, and kind of how we got there and the role of the gnwt in, in in not only just kind of not seeing this as a problem but actually accelerating the the concentration yeah the gnwt it's interesting they they decided early on that it wasn't a problem to sort of rely on this company for its for its public housing. That was, I think, one of the the sort of main ways in which it's culpable. Because the moment that um, you know people people living in these buildings have all kinds of maintenance issues and complaints, and especially those buildings that are kind of predominantly uh, public housing. There are usually complaints about security. There are complaints about garbage in the hallways or broken windows bad maintenance stuff, that kind of stuff. And what it being public housing kind of does is it creates this artificial barrier where an organization like the Yellowknife Housing Corporation becomes the renter from Northview and the landlord to the person. So the person calls Northview and says, hey, someone broke my window. Can you send someone by to to fix it? And Northview says, that's not our problem. That's Yellowknife's problem. It's not happening in Yellowknife. That's evident from visiting a lot of the properties under their ownership. The other thing, though, that really uh, where the GNWT is super culpable, and this gets into this whole thing about 
you know, the $20 million rent payments and that kind of thing, is that the GNWT also leases a lot of its commercial space from Northview. And, you know, to a certain extent, I understand that because Yellowknife already has a major vacancy issue with its commercial space. It overbuilt in the 80s because of really stupid planning by the city of Yellowknife. Yeah, we loved just so putting well giant towers up. It was just insane. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're, we're we are the New York of the North. build towers, yeah. you know? <laughs> I think there really was a philosophy back then of of perpetual growth and people saw the mine and everything else is as going to, you know, this is going to last forever. These are the glory days. So like there was a lot of overbuilding and as a result, there's now a lot of vacancy. And so the territory rents a lot of its commercial space in these old, you know, office buildings that are now owned by King Center Northview. And so they transfer a lot of money to that uh, company in the form of rent payments. Now, there are two things to consider here. One is that there is a report that the GNWT has produced, or actually it was the housing corporation that produced this report, which almost makes it worse, that says that building these facilities purpose-built for the government is likely going to cost the same amount over the course of the lease as renting it would, that it would, you know, ultimately this is something that is uh, fairly, uh, sustainable to do, and it would be an alternative that would give the GNWT control over its own assets. So that addresses the office uh, office side of things. But when you think about that applied to public housing, it becomes even more damning because if the government wants to provide housing for people, they could literally just be building it. Like we know that there's a housing shortage. We know that there are no spaces. And instead of building it at a cost that is less than renting it, they are, or at the very least equal to it, they're sitting on their hands waiting for someone else to do it so that they can rent it at above market rates. And the, the really kind of sick thing about all of this is that for a company like Northview and Kingset, who are very aware of the, of the housing crisis and in fact are explicit about how profitable it is for them, the fact that they have a government on call who is willing to provide them with kind of long unquestioned leases uh, that provide regular income. That's one of the main reasons why they are a profitable company. And they say that explicitly in all of their cases to investors and all their annual reports. These long government backed leases are the reason we are such a safe bet for investors. If they were to lose that, that base of income, it would be a lot harder to make the business case for Northview. And that because at the very least, you would have so many complaints about their about their units, and they would be functioning primarily like any other private sector landlord, and having to ensure that they provide, you know, that they're able to attract new tenants. So, there really is a question here about what the GNWT uh, has to say about all this. <laughs> you know. Yeah, and I wanted to talk a bit about that GNWT lack of response. In that. Uh... Did the Minister of Housing or Infrastructure uh, speak at all to $20 million of public money being sent to Northview for your multi-part series? No, and in fact, we did actually, we did submit that request uh, three or four times and uh, they feel zero consequence for not being accountable, for not having a minister speak on the record about housing. You know, like when you're doing a four part series about the North's biggest landlord, you want the housing minister to comment because it's their portfolio. You want the, you know, the housing corporation to comment because they're the company's biggest tenant. 
And they didn't. And they didn't partly because their comms people did not see it as a, as a lost proposition for them uh, to not speak. They probably saw it as a lost proposition to actually put the person forward because they know that they're going to say something stupid and make themselves look like idiots. And this is like, that's the big problem in NWT politics is you've got a lot of inexperienced politicians. You've got a lot of comms people who are you know, terrified of their own shadow. And so there's a real sense that, you know, the moment you step into cabinet, you you can't talk about anything because it's too, it's too, uh, too risky to all involve. Yeah, the, the, that risk aversion is, is definitely a real factor. But I guess that's also combined with, you know, there's an army of comms people, uh, I, it's amazing to me that the Department of Infrastructure or, or Housing, you can't talk to anyone. Like, I don't think there's a quote from a, a civil servant in the, in the piece. Um, no. and, and this is a thing I, I'd also like to talk about is, to me, you should be able to call up the head of leasing who, you know, is in charge of millions and millions of dollars of public money and is making giant decisions, you know, unilaterally. We, we often don't tender leases. Uh, and, and then the GNWT actually also makes millions in leases. So it's like, it, it in and of itself, this this person, I have no idea who he is or who they are, uh, but could, could you pick up the phone and talk to that person in the GNWT? No, absolutely not. And in fact, it extends beyond that because you can't talk to nurses, you can't talk to doctors, you can't talk to teachers, like all of these things that journalists elsewhere take for granted. I mean, when I was working in the United States, you could call most local politicians, most, you know, state politicians, even federal politicians, you could get them on the phone pretty easily, mostly because in the United States, there's a real sense that it's like, oh, the media is calling, the media wants to talk to me, I want to be in the media. And, you know, in, in Canada, we're a much more private country. So there's a bit of that, that prevents people from kind of, you know, picking up the phone right away. But the crazy thing with the GNWT that always gets me is like, they're structured like they're taking care of a population the size of Ontario. And they aren't like they could, you know, one of the first conversations I had with a longtime journalist when I moved up north is they said, you know, the funny thing with the, the homeless problem in Yellowknife is that the people making decisions about these issues could probably name every single homeless person in Yellowknife by name. They could probably, you can get them all into like a high school gym. And so like, why is this, why is this like this? Why do we treat it like it's this, oh, this very serious policy issue? And part of it is because you have these kids who have no experience or knowledge of the North, who have very little desire to, to learn about the North, who are brought up here at six-figure salaries and then are, are asked to kind of run the place. And they, they, they pretend, they sort of cosplay a real government when in fact it's a very small municipality that just has very unique challenges. And, and can you speak to what the comms role specifically? But, um, you know, a lot of these departments, the comms people treat it as if, number one, they treat it as if we're the enemy. I mean, I remember at CBC, we had a couple of times where our managing editor literally had to get together with their managing people and say, like, what's going on? Why do you, why are you treating us like you hate us so much? Um and, you know, the other thing is that they see their job as like, oh, we've got an inquiry. How are we going to protect all of this information that should only belong to us um, and ensure that the government comes off as like doing the best possible thing in all circumstances? And I just think that, you know, a lot of the time when journalists submit requests to government, especially if they aren't 
talking to the minister, I mean, I gave up on, on getting information from the GNWT a long time ago to a certain extent. But a lot of the time, people, journalists send requests being like, can I get this information so that it's accurate in my article? Um, and when a, when a comms person treats that as a hostile line of inquiry, you're just kind of left in the dark. And so you're like, okay, well, what they're trying to do is kill the story by you know a lack of information. But what it ends up with is you end up with a story that is less well-informed. So these sort of comms people need to figure out that it's like, you know, we aren't trying to, journalists are not trying to, I mean, I was often trying to critique <laughs> the GNWT and I think that showed in my work because I, I almost immediately saw a lot of these issues with, you know, these are, this is a government that, that tended, even the previous government as much as the current one, they tended to try and give the appearance of doing something while, you know, the moment that you poked under the surface and said, okay, well, what is this actually doing? There was very little actual implementation. There were a lot of action plans and, you know, you know, implementation plans and action plans again. And, uh, and so th there was a degree to which what I wanted to do with my journalism was kind of poke them to be better at both communicating what they were doing and actually addressing issues in a kind of time sensitive way. Yeah. I also think it's it's a it's a huge disservice to the public servants who are doing work because I mean you right. know the GNWT is a massive organization, but there are people who have their action plan and are taking implementation very seriously and are tirelessly kind of working to get that out and get it accomplished despite yeah. you know all the system working against them. But you, you the. I'm not allowed to talk to them as an MLA. You know, I, there's seven layers of approval. You aren't allowed to talk to them? No, no. See, that surprises me. It's always, not allowed to talk to you, I always imagine that within the GNWT, you aren't allowed to talk to So who do you have to talk to? I, the ministers? ministers. Only allowed to talk to ministers. And, and sometimes wow. in a meeting, like, you know, I'll be questioning a minister repeatedly and they just can't answer the question because they don't understand, you know, especially technical questions. And sometimes right. a public servant will come up to me after and go, no, no, actually, the reason that we're spending more on fuel is because we brought this company into the portfolio. And I'll go, but you see, thank you. Is that, you know, if you, Yellowknife is a really, really small town. And so there is a fairly good chance that as an MLA, you would be at a barbecue or, you know, a beer barge with some of these people who are civil servants. And then you could talk infinitely about their work and their jobs, and you could get that kind of information fairly freely, but you can't attribute it. And I just, the thing that I don't understand about the GNWT is they seem to want to operate in a space where everything has to be attributed to one or two people. And I don't understand that level of control. Like number one, from an accountability perspective, it's worse because even though there is one person beneath the surface where because of this kind of weird shielding of everything that happens in the in the government i i used to hear constantly of, of stories of people who would be like you would not believe what's happening in this department and they would not you know like they wouldn't have they wouldn't be able to attribute it they wouldn't have they wouldn't be able to meet the evidentiary bar that we need for journalism so the problem goes unsolved. Like I think about the foster family coalition and their letter about frontline workers abusing foster families and that kind of thing. 
And that was like an open secret in Yale and I for a long time that that kind of stuff was going on. But until the Foster Family Coalition put that in writing and that one person, the head of the coalition, put themselves in, in a lot of exposure in order to do that, we couldn't report on it. We couldn't attribute any of it. We couldn't even talk to social workers who had left because they, they basically are under these agreements that they can't discuss anything that they've done. So it's just crazy. It's such an unnecessary level of control for a government. And it really makes me wonder, like, what is the, aside from force of habit, because at this time, I do think a lot of it comes down to like, they've been doing this forever. But like, what is the logic that you've seen for this kind of level of information control? What is the concern that they're worried about? I, I think it's this weird yeah, it's operating under this Westminster model where we are trying to pretend we have ministerial responsibility. And so the, everyone in the public service is March that no, no, the minister is accountable. You know, the minister has to say that they sign off on this. And, and you know, that, that model makes sense. You know, if Justin Trudeau says, I'm going to end clean drinking water on reserves and fails, I, I get that level of responsibility because... He ultimately is in charge and, and it makes sense. But when you have this kind of constant shuffling of ministers who are not getting into the weeds of their departments and to assign them ministerial responsibility, when we all kind of know they are not in charge, um, yeah. just it, 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 it removes the accountability from anywhere. And we, information mm -hmm. flow necessitates accountability. So I, I just, yeah, yeah, it seems to be everyone has become too risk averse. To even, you know, that yeah, God, a director in a department could never speak out to, to me or you directly about a problem. Like they, they have to go up the chain of command. And by the time it gets to the minister who is responsible, the problem has been watered down. And, oh, so yeah. I, and it's I just, also like comms people get in the way and they say, don't talk about this because there's no way to win this conversation. But the reality is, is that if you're talking to a deputy minister who knows the subject area, they are the ones who are best equipped to explain how we got where we are and why it's not just as simple as fix it, right? And so I think this speaks to the media as well and that like, you know, a lot of journalists come to the North, myself included, and are like, why don't they just fix it? Why don't they just fix these problems? And I still feel that way because I do think there's a, a large degree to which government in action and kind of government incompetence and ineptitude are behind a lot of these problems. But I also think that it's not that simple and it's just not being explained to us properly why government hasn't been able to solve these problems and why it's not as simple as that. And this goes to this thing we were talking about before we started recording, which is, you know, the change election thing. People want to want to think that, oh, well, we just changed the politicians and it all fixed. Well, that's a, that's a symptom of the fact that we keep acting like the politicians are the ones responsible for this and not listening to the people who actually are. We're just listening to ministers say, you're right, it's not good enough, and I apologize and we'll do better. And it's like, you know, how, how is that going to fix anything? Yeah, and it's a cultural thing, like to pretend that we could also just change all the deputy ministers tomorrow and replace them with other deputy ministers and the problem will be solved is, is not true either. Institutions have cultures that, you know, are very rigidly enforced and, you know, we're operating on a public yeah. service model that is, is from England in the 17th century. Like it's, it's still very, yeah. you, you watch Yes Minster, or, you know, these 70s BBC shows yeah. and, and, and nothing has changed. They apply to the GNWT exactly. 
Um, yeah. And I do actually think that a lot of people within the public service kind of fetishize that kind of role. They imagine themselves as like a power behind a throne, which is which is problematic. But the other thing is, is that the GNWT has this very specific history, which I thought I learned about it in the last year. And I thought it was fascinating that, you know, the GNWT was created by miners, uh, mining interests uh, back when Treaty 11 was still being negotiated and signed in order to kind of uh, facilitate the rush of white settlers to the north. And that's the origin story of the GNWT. And its yeah, and, model is very much based on interest. like the model of federal government. Yeah, and oil interests. That's the, I mean, that's the main thing. But like its model is based on federal government, you know, approaches to the north in the 1940s and 50s and, and that kind of culture. So it it's always had this kind of imported reality. And I think that the problem with that is, is that the GNWT, there are arguments, very valid arguments about whether or not the GNWT should even exist, right? Like whether it should be devolved to indigenous governments or whether there should be alternative models that don't rely on like a large white bureaucracy to run things. But let's say for the sake of argument that you wanted to keep the GNWT, eventually you're going to have to indigenize that model of government. You're going to have to end its reliance on Southern workers with bachelor's degrees from, you know, well-established universities. And you're going to have to transition to a model which looks and feels more Northern. And I just don't think if, you're, if your structure is to have, you know, eight bureaucrats between the public and the minister, I don't think that works in the North. <laughs> like, I don't think there are either the people here to support that or the, or the, you know, the will to make that model work. I think people want a more direct and responsive form of democracy. And I think the, the problem is, is that if you have these, this large apparatus to manage all of these, these departments, you're, you're never. And it's, it, it's kind of exasperated in this, you know, the GNWT is extremely siloed. Uh, it, the, the departments aren't talking to one another. Um, and you also, I, I feel for the people working in it, though, because they are also not empowered. Like, you know, if you are responsible for the mm -hmm. homeless file in Yellowknife, like you don't just get handed a four million dollar budget and say, go spend it. Like you you spend 90 percent of your time not solving homelessness. You spend 90 percent of your time in GNWT meetings navigating the GNWT. So, yeah. And to, to put the accountability on that person and say, why didn't you do this? And they go, are you, are you kidding me? Like, look where I spent all of my oh, yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's a giant black box almost by design. And the thing that's crazy about it too is that, you know, it's now the North's largest employer. And I think dismantling that level of, of sort of unnecessary uh, bureaucracy, unnecessary kind of red tape and, and just layers on layers of bodies just shuffling paper. I think dismantling that's going to be near impossible now. So the question is, okay, if you can't get rid of the GNWT, if the GNWT is going to be your major employer, how do you actually make it better for the territory? And there's some thoughts on that. Like I've heard thoughts about, you know, um, decentralization and and moving more jobs to communities and that kind of thing and and dispersing the the departments and and removing stuff from Yellowknife and all that stuff I I get that I think though that communications is a good place to start because if you change the culture and communications 
if you made it more responsive and more accountable, uh, and if you if you changed up some of the logic of of the people at the top there, um, then I think you would have a, a government that would be able to answer tougher questions and and potentially justify its own existence a little better than it has. Yeah, I, I, and that has been one of my focuses is that I I think if you actually could peel back the layers and you could have a, a director or a mid-level manager feel comfortable saying, listen, this was me getting a lease for a day shelter. And I had to, in order to do this, according to the process, have 45 meetings, uh, go up and down a chain that takes six weeks each time, four times uh, in order to sign a lease. Yeah. And then finance actually took three months to disperse the money. And just like, if they laid out yeah. that that is the process they had to go through, and, and that was public information. Like they could call John Last or call Ryland Johnson and say that. Like we would all go, this is insane. It's absolutely insane. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But that, but that level of exposure is not good for anyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, John. Well, I, I think, you know, this conversation might just uh, continue to devolve into complete griping about the GNWC. And, and that, that's not a, you know, I, perhaps that's where many of my conversations evolve. But no, I, I want to thank you for coming on. I, I will continue, uh, even in your absence, to try and get GNWT comms and staff to speak to the media. Because uh, at least if we can get the information flowing and the communication, that. we could uh, get some understanding of the level yeah. of the problem. Because it, it's, it's a complicated yeah. problem. And uh, once again, thank yeah. you. Well, and who knows? I might be working for the GNWT Cons Department in a couple of years, so let's not <laughs> hold our breath. <laughs> yeah. And uh, thank you for your North Street piece. I uh, I am looking forward to grilling the Minister of Housing and Infrastructure about why they both failed to respond and what they're going to do about it, if anything, uh, in the upcoming. Session. Excellent. I'll look forward to that. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Take care. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Please send me any uh, feedback you have. And actually, I'll link in the episode description. Anchor, which is the company I produce this podcast with, allows uh, listeners to send listener feedback in the form of a voice memo. So if you do that, I'll, I'll include it at the end of next week's episode as kind of a, a feedback loop. Uh, the music you're hearing right now is for them, the very talented Carmen Braden. Check her out at CarmenBraden.com. Thank you to anyone who is listening. And if you have any suggestions of guests you'd like to hear, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, just shoot me a message on the ledge. With Take care, everyone.